0: Tim Brown is a retired U.S. Marine who suffered a significant injury after stepping on an IED during his third deployment to Afghanistan. Sports played a major role in his recovery while at Walter Reed, and he became a serious and avid cyclist. After earning a degree in marketing and management from Georgetown University, Tim started interning at Move United and has a goal of working with a member organization where he can continue to show others the power of sport. So Tim, um, you know, I, I think maybe for listeners, uh, Tim, everyone should should know right off the top and right off the bat that Tim is a member of Move United staff and, and team. So, uh, gotten to know Tim pretty well over the past you know couple of years. But I want to what I what I want to start with is I want to get to know uh, Tim Brown as a as a young as a young boy. So were you uh, how were you as a kid and and were you active? Were you involved with sports then? Well, that didn't sound creepy
1: at all, Sean. Um, no, not at all. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I had various uh, levels of activity, uh, uh, at least when it came to sports uh, as I was growing up. Uh, I was active. I played Little League and, like, YMCA League uh, baseball and soccer up until I was about in sixth grade. That's um, right about the time that kids become a bunch of assholes. And then, yeah, I just kind of got disinterested in sports where it's like you could hit a triple and tie the game up, send it to extra innings, but because you overset the base, suddenly you're like a pariah. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand this. <laughs> um, but, uh, but my, you know, my activity wasn't limited to just uh, team sports. Though I always, I grew up a Boy Scout um, from Tiger Cubs through Cub Scouts, We Blows into Boy Scouts all the way to Eagle Scout uh, that I, uh, I picked up just under the deadline. Um, I was real active outdoors. Uh, and I always kind of preferred that anyway. You know, I was always a little more of a loner. So I was spending time out in the woods, you know, hiking around, mm-hmm. you know, doing some long-term suffering. I was always kind of more of my speed anyway. Um, especially when I got into high school or when I was, you know, the upper couple levels of high school, you know, I take it as a point of pride on like how heavy my pack was, uh, especially after I had done Philmont when I was I think, mm. in like eighth grade. Wow. And yeah. um, so uh, we'd go on these, uh, you know, the weekend backpacking trips. We'd go to, you know, Enchanted Rock or in the other state parks uh, here in Texas. And we'd backpack for like, you know, two days, three nights or whatever it was. And I was like, well, this isn't enough. I got to add more. So I straight up put, you know, weights from this, you know, cheapo like dumbbell set in my backpack to make sure it weighed 70 pounds um and this wasn't you know it wasn't a super high speed rei you know gregory pack or anything like that it was it was a kelty that i got as a hand-me-down from a friend that had bought it in like 1974 or something like it was basically green canvas with like the big metal zippers that are about that wide um so it was a big old pack um Mm -hmm. and i always enjoyed you know that kind of activity more um continued it on um uh, through my time in the Marines, when I was in Japan, I tried to get out and do uh, do some hiking. Usually, wound up being on my own, because everyone says they want to hike until it's time to hike, and then like, oh, I go <laughs> to
0: and then um, everybody disperses, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, then they just no, kind of disappear. Everybody
0: yeah. disappears. Like, where is everybody?
1: <laughs> yeah, it comes time to pack, and they're like, "I don't want to do this." But a lot of those people have never experienced hiking outside of like the Marine Corps, which is terrible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's hey, let's take a bunch of crappy, really heavy equipment and put it on and march at somebody else's pace. I kept trying to remind them, no, real backpacking and hiking is much more fun because you cannot carry so much dumb stuff. And then you can also walk at your own pace and stop and enjoy the views and all that stuff.
0: And for Um, some reason, you don't have to do it in formation, and for some reason, you don't have to do it in these uncomfortable
1: boots. (laughs) Yeah, you're not you're not in the world's worst boots walking through like a sand wadi for no apparent reason. You know, on your own hike, and you find yourself in a sandy wadi. You can be like, I'm gonna get up here where the trail's a little firmer. Um, So I had wind up while I was in Japan, I hiked uh, climb Mount Fuji. It's kind of a big unit trip, but luckily it was individual. Um, And then also on my own, I. Uh, drove up to Mount Dyson, which is the tallest mountain in Yamaguchi, or in the southern right. part of Japan. Um, I think it was like seventeen hundred meters, maybe a little, little shorter than Fuji. But um, uh, I've always enjoyed hiking. Uh,
0: yeah. Others. So was that? Was that? If you had to name one. Was that your main, would that, would that be the one you've been named? Was was, that, was backpacking your go-to and
1: hiking, was your, was that your go-to? Oh, absolutely. Um, I never had as much fun as I did, you know, in the backcountry.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and I'm talking about like the real backcountry where you can't get motorized vehicles. You have to walk for 20 miles so you can get to it. Um, that was always kind of what I aspired to be doing was being out the middle of nowhere by myself, just walking among trees.
0: Well, I'm I'm already jelly because you told me two things that, that I'm I'm jealous about. One, I still share that I my one of my biggest regrets in life was not getting my eagle. I was a life scout and I think I just didn't have the the gumption, you know, to complete it, which you know, now looking back, obviously I can say that was a big regret. And and so you know I was a few merit badges shy and a service project shy, so congrats on on getting the Eagle Scout. That's uh, that's a, a big accomplishment. And then of course you, you mentioned Philmont and you went the fact that fact you went to Philmont and I, I my troop never went or or really promoted it heavily. So it's not I knew about it, but it's not something that I until I learned more again probably later after, afterwards that you know, darn, I wish I'd have known, I wish I'd have been a bigger deal and something that would have been promoted because uh, that would have been an awesome experience.
1: So I'm glad you got to do it too. <laughs> it it definitely was an awesome experience. And it's one that's even gotten harder now since when we were, since when I was a teenager and this was, I went there in 1998, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you basically have to put your name on the the list in Cub Scouts if you want to be able to make it to lot. I feel you on the, de- the delay on Eagle Scout. I, I very nearly didn't make it myself. Um, uh, we moved to, from San Antonio to Houston uh, when I was 15. I think I picked up life by the time I was 13. Um, I picked up life real early then stagnated, uh, especially during that move. Um, you know, lost all my my friend group, had to make new friends and kind of just... You know, I kept going, I was at the, you know, every weekly meeting and stuff like that, but I wasn't really getting the merit badges and the progression done. And it wasn't until I was like 17, like, you know, early senior in high school when I was like, oh crap, I need to get this crap done. And, uh, I want to, you know, semi light my pants on fire and got through it and had my Scoutmaster conference 10 days before I turned 18. Mm. um so you know i couldn't get much closer to the deadline than that uh, yeah. i think i was already in college when i actually had my ceremony <laughs> so um you know i slid in under the wire too uh so i can see how especially in those tumultuous teenage years that you know, a lot of people wouldn't oh, yeah. see it through and you know maybe wouldn't have a parent who is you know trying to to put a boot up their ass and make sure they actually finish
0: <laughs> exactly yeah i think i was lacking that a
1: bit myself so
0: and so one of the things I always like to do ask fellow veterans is is your is what what was your why why did you why did you sign why did you enlist why did you
1: uh, take the oath to to join the military? I don't know if I have a, a real specific you know why that's you know you may hear people saying oh the I watched the towers come down I knew then I was going to join I knew when I was like eight that I wanted to join the military I don't even know necessarily know if I knew why I grew up in San Antonio. Um, It was a big Air Force town at that time, Kelly and Brooks were still active Air Force bases as well. So, you know, my childhood was spent watching the big whales fly around in the sky, the Mm -hmm. the C-5s that that got maintained down in Kelly. And um, for a while, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be in the Air Force. Um, I don't think I even knew what the Marines were. We didn't have any Marines in our family. Um, My dad was in the Navy, but I don't remember him talking about Marines. and it wasn't until I was about 10 that my brother my parents sent my brother to a, uh, a military academy down in Harlingen Texas uh, it's called Marine Military Academy and it's a straight up residential boarding school mm-hmm. where you know, that's run by Marines um, <laughs> you live there like a, a miniature service academy like something you'd see at the Citadel or VMI or whatever and um, uh, I met those guys and was basically instantly in love. I was like, I want to be one of those dudes. Those dudes are crazy. Uh, it helped that I had looked up to my older brother pretty much everything. Um, so when he was there, and I saw the change that, you know, having these these Marines take a, uh, a borderline delinquent teenager, you know, and turn him into somebody really worth looking up to, uh, that helped a lot. Uh, so really, from the age of ten, that's all I ever wanted to do was be a Marine. Um, and service and um just the calling the to, to to join the warrior profession is all i ever wanted to do uh, when other kids were reading harry potter in high school i was reading biographies of robert e lee and Patton, and you know i had like the, the ken burns civil war documentary on repeat basically uh, this is back when the history channel still showed history stuff right exactly. I it all the time um, <laughs> just constantly and I'd go out and read stuff, you know, I'd, I'd sit there and stare at the, the maps, the campaign maps and, and books and try to figure out you know, how and why and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I guess the specific, you know, what I became a Marine has changed a bit. I wanted to go to college and eventually become an officer. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up around too many people who didn't actually know as much as they thought about the military. Um, so I was like, I don't want to be a dunker. I don't want to go be an officer. I was all full of myself. Um, and then I filled out a electrical engineering at university of Houston and was like, well, crap, I guess I got to join the Marine Corps a little bit early now. Um, so I enlisted uh, instead of commissioning. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think I like it better. Um, partly because if I commissioned as a Marine, I would never have been able to be explosive orange disposal. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's something to be said for. You know, the enlisted who actually make things happen, right? As opposed to the shinies who just take credit for all the things that happen. So no no bias uh, there. (laughs) No, no bias at all. And and so you mentioned I've never had my my personal work, you know, been claimed by an officer before. Never. And, And so you
0: mentioned something about, you know, you obviously started out with school and and what was it were you know, was it not just the right time for you or what was it about, you know, n- not, you know, uh, excelling or, or being or accomplishing what you wanted to accomplish there? It was a combination
1: of, I think, the wrong major um, and uh, lack of maturity, lack of self-knowledge um, that kind of through my, my early college career. Um, I thought I wanted to be an electrical engineer um, probably because I'd heard it was the most difficult engineering, you know. Background. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go do that. Um, never mind the fact that you know, physics two and calculus in high school kicked my ass. I took both of those as AP courses my senior year and failed both of them. Uh, physics, I was doing so badly that I was mathematically eliminated from passing like halfway through the semester. So I came in and did exams. And during the exam, I was doing homework for another AP class that so I was doing well in uh, history, go figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, when I got to school, it wasn't for lack of studying. It wasn't for partying. In 2002, 2003, there wasn't a whole lot of partying going on at U of H. You um, know, it's kind of an overgrown commuter university, and um, I went to a few parties, but half of those parties were after I'd already filled all my courses for most of my courses. Um, you know, the, I wasn't. I was able to finally pass calculus with a C the second time I took it. Filled calculus two again. Um, uh, had a, a penchant for sleeping through my chemistry class. So I filled it the first time. Uh, second time, I was doing really well until I said I to take a nap one day and slept for like eight hours and missed an exam. Even though my roommate was in the same class, mm. um, got up and left, went to the exam while I was still asleep. I was like, dude, come on. I know it's Thank my you. responsibility to know when the exam is, but you want to like, hook, you want to hook somebody up? And yeah, just keep my thanks, ass man. On the way thanks, the man. <laughs> But, um, it was, uh, I just, it wasn't for lack of time. You know, I'd spent so much time pouring over the books, um, you know, doing the practice visit, uh, calculus equations and stuff, but never really knowing, you know, exactly what I was doing or what I was accomplishing. They were just, they were just numbers. Uh, it was art at some point, just numbers on a page that I was trying to, to rehash, but I never really understood why, um.
0: But I think I think your to your point. I mean, there is there are is a a significant percentage of of folks at that age that, in my opinion, aren't ready, you know, for college, and it's a it's a big transition, and and so sometimes, uh, and we'll talk about obviously uh, your your college your later college experience in in a minute. Um, but but you know, there's just sometimes timing is not right, and, and so when you when you did enlist in the Marines, did you know what your Military occupation, your MOS, your military occupation skill, or your job and the what you wanted to be as a marine. Well, I
1: did what I wanted to be. Um, it wasn't what I ended up being. Yeah, recruiters. <laughs> uh huh. Um, I, so I, I have my own.
0: I have my own experiences around
1: that. Rec- exactly. Rec- recruiters character. never lie to people. Recruiters are one hundred percent honest. If you're <laughs> out there considering joining the military, believe everything they say. Um, now, the uh, I came in. Uh, once again, going back to listening to too many people who didn't know about the militaries, I thought they did. Um, I came in wanting to be counterintelligence. I watched too many movies and thought it was cool. And <laughs> I didn't realize you had to let move into that career in the Marine Corps. Um, so the recruiter's like, well, we don't have that available. We have COM, and that's pretty close. I was like, in my head, I was like, no, it's not. Um, but I can do COM. Like I was thinking I was uh, I was going to go be... You know, a, a network operator, a uh, tactical uh, data network operator or something like that. No, he took me and put me in like as a radio operator, mm. which uh, the whole time through boot camp, I kept getting berated by one of my DIs because he was in comm. He was a, a multiplexing operator a her, as we call them. And every time he see me, he's like, Brown, why are you in my MOS? Because I had a GT of 133. Um, I was maxed on like every score possible. And he was like, Why did this idiot recruiter make you a radio operator? Um, like, you can have the IQ of a shoe and be successful as a radio operator. And I came to discover that most of the people in my platoon seemed to have the IQ of a shoe. And um, um, so I wound up joining as COM, spent four years as a radio operator with 1st Marine Regiment out in uh, Camp Pendleton. I uh, deployed once with the regiment to Fallujah in 2004. I was there for Al-Fajr. And uh, again, as an augment, in 2005, I got attached to the National Guard. Hmm. Um, because I was, I was already, after two months of being home, I was already full when it came to dealing with the communications unit stateside. So <laughs> as soon as they asked for volunteers to go to Afghanistan, my hand shot up in the air before he was even done asking the question. I was like, "Get me the hell out of this unit!" <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and uh, so I wound up changing jobs partway through my career. Um, I tried so out a- for counter- after
0: after processing. four after four years as a radio operator is when you decided I want to switch switch occupations.
1: Yes. Yeah, I started. Uh, I tried out for counterintelligence. I went through their whole. Uh, uh onboarding screening process and theirs is a long ass process uh it, it was like six months long for me uh, i had to go take a bunch of extra exams uh, like the d-lab and some other like can you read tests basically because mm-hmm. it's the marine so you have to make sure that they can read um i had to write a a 10-page research paper um, oh, yeah, back in the you know we could only use two internet sources so I wound up having to go, you know, spend some long days at the uh, UCLA library, just trying to dig out something, some source I can use to write a research paper about a two-year-old terrorist group. Hmm. Whereas, like my other friend who had tried out for them, he got to write about Jordan, the whole country. He had to write a ten-page paper on a whole country. So you didn't choose your, you didn't choose the topic. They they chose the topic okay. for you. Yep, they give it to you. Interesting. And uh, and then they tear it apart, and the at the end, uh, the end of the screening process is a basically a three hour long interrogation by experienced counterintelligence operators. So it was it was not the most fun, mm-hmm. um, and I failed miserably. There was there was a lot of you knew a lot of social graces and you know, a silver <laughs> tongue to be successful as as a counterintelligence uh, Marine. And I was not that. Um, so at the end of the three hours, they told me I'd make a really great analyst. And I was like, Yeah, you can go F yourself. I don't I've seen those guys, all they do is sit around and print out maps. I don't wanna do that. And um so I was despondent for months. Like I didn't know what to do with my life. That was all everything I wanted to be was that. Mm-hmm. Um, but my best friend at the time, uh, Dave Lyon had gone and become an EOD tech while I was messing around in Afghanistan. Invited me down to a shop in Miramar. Um, you know, we had some adult beverages and we, we drove some off-road segways around and general explosive awareness disposal hooligany. And then they went and blew stuff up the next day. I didn't go with them for that, obviously, but you know, they're like, yeah, we're going to go blow stuff up you know, tomorrow. I was like, dude, that's cool. Well, i gonna do that. <laughs> How do I do and that? Uh, How do I get to yeah, do that? For so you know, I, I chatted with Dave some more about it, and decided like this is what I want to do. This is something that's going to continue to challenge me. It's a field that I'm not going to rank out of. Uh, a lot of fields like communications. Once you're beyond corporal, you're not really doing anything. Uh, you you sit around and you maybe write some training plans if you're training NCO, or once every few months you do some proficiency and conduct marks or something like that. But otherwise, you don't do a lot when you hit the staff and CEO ranks, you definitely don't ever leave the office. You know, there was no challenge at that point. You're just a paper pusher. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I don't want to do this. And, you know, seeing how EOD worked, everybody basically was a staff and CEO in an EOD unit. So I was like, okay, cool. Or like even, even the master sergeants and the, the chief warrant officers are still engaged in their job and have a brotherhood that's even tighter than what the rest of the Marine Corps had to offer. Mm-hmm. And so I said this is the job I want to do. Um packed my bags, eventually went to Florida and uh you know, went into to EOD school. Um that school is about eight months long. It has something like just shy of 50 tests in in seven months. Um, Sometimes you'll have three tests a week. You mm-hmm. can't take your, your materials home to study. It's just a full-on assault on your brain of learn, forget, learn, drop, learn, drop. You know, just continually make space for all this new knowledge. And um, uh, I didn't want up graduating with a class I started with. Uh, I rolled back into another class after bombs um, and uh, fell into Brian Mass's class. Mm. Classes, um, I would meet many people. A few, a few people. So you, from mean, this class you mean, you was, mean, was
0: he, was he in your class, or was he one of the instructors in the class?
1: Oh, he was in the class. He was one of the other students. Oh, okay. Uh, in, in 0810S was uh, the class I graduated with. Didn't get to know him that well. I was only in that class for the last, I think, two months. Uh-huh. Um, of, of VOD school, uh, but he was in there. Uh, I would later meet. A few of the people from that class uh, at Walter Reed, Bethesda, uh, I think three of us uh, went on to lose some limbs. Uh, myself, Brian, and uh, uh, Tom McRae. Uh, we all had a reunion of sorts at Walter Reed, mm-hmm. not the kind that we wanted, but we had. Right.
0: And so after you completed the training, what were some of your other duty assignments or, or duty
1: stations? So I went straight from uh, EOD school to um, Marine Corps Air Station, Iwakuni uh, in Japan. It became pretty clear that only one guy out of our 10 Marine group was going to make it to first company um, on Pendleton, which is where I wanted to go. Of course, that's where everybody wanted to go. Hmm. So my options were Cherry Point, North Carolina, or Iwakuni, Japan. And I was like, I don't want to go to Cherry Point. So let me try this Iwakuni thing out. I'll try Japan. At that point, I wasn't really interested in Japan did have a desire to go there. Um, you know, in high school I was obsessed with Germany, so I wanted to go there, but there aren't a whole lot of Marines in Germany, uh, so I to. So, go so
0: you didn't have you didn't have or did you have a, a desire to be stationed you know uh, overseas anywhere besides Germany? Besides
1: Germany and combat tours, no, not really. Okay. Um, And this was this was before I want I wound up living in Japan. Um, Japan would change my mind, Mm -hmm. Um, especially because the fact that Iwakuni is on Honshu, the main island of Japan. It's not Okinawa. You know, you're not surrounded by twenty thousand idiot marine infantrymen who can't go a single night without causing some sort of international incident. No, you're a small six thousand man garrison. You know, in the middle of Japan. So mm-hmm. once you get outside the immediate area base, the immediate area of Iwakuni, um, a lot of Japanese people didn't even realize we were there. Um, which I found strange. But um, you could get out and just get completely away from America and Americans and just experience Japan for what it was. Um, so many more options than, than Okinawa offered in terms of Exploring cities, going on hikes of mountains, seeing ancient bridges and samurai museums and stuff like that. And uh, by the time I was done in Japan, I didn't really want to leave. And uh, had I not gotten blown up, my plan was to go back to Japan Mm. for as long as I could scam it. I was going to try and bounce around units in Japan because I just had such a blast over there. Mm. Um, It was basically a a never-ending opportunity to learn about, you know, how things can be 180 degrees from what you grew up in. Right. And, and yeah, and just, uh, obviously an ancient culture and a
0: long, you uh, know, a very old, uh, country and, and culture as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, when, and so did after your tour of duty there, did, were you shipped back over to Afghanistan or?
1: Yeah. So, I, uh, I didn't deploy out of Japan. Um, the Deployment spots from uh, Japan-based units are usually pretty hard to come by, okay. uh, at least on the mainland Japan ones. Okinawa units will often get attached to one of the major 1st or 2nd Marine Division um, units. But, um, but ours, you know, our job was to sit around and wait for North Korea to get froggy. Um, and that's what our mission was, so they didn't send us a whole lot of places. But I came back to first company in Camp Pendleton. Um, originally, I was being told I was supposed to be on a marine expeditionary unit. So I was kind of happy about it. You know, I, I'd heard they were boring as hell, but it felt like something I had to do. I had to go pay my dues on a boat if I was going to call myself a marine. Um, otherwise, you know, I'm just an overtrained soldier. And um, But instead, apparently they had screwed up the table of organization roster. So instead of winding up with the MEW, like, oh, uh, we don't have a spot for you there. So, welcome to company. You deploy in two months. It's essentially my phone call uh, with the staff and CEOs at first company. I was like, oh, terrific. Like, I wanted to deploy, but not two months after I just got back from Japan. Mm-hmm. I wanted to enjoy some time in the U.S. for a little bit before going over. <laughs> um, so, I jumped into the uh, to the uh, the workup process. Um, kind of, they spun me up to speed, you know, kind of as fast as I could. And, um, attached me to a team leader who, uh, who had just gotten back recently from a deployment, re blew his fingers off. Mm. And, um, uh, and they said, Hey, guess what? You're going to Sangin." So I was like, of all the freaking places you could send a dude who had two months of workup, you're going to attach him to a dude who blew his own fingers off last time he was there. And then you're going to send them to the worst place in Helmand Province. Um, Great. Right. So y- yippee! Yeah, yeah no, I know. There were the phone conversations with my parents. prior to that deployment went over much differently than my previous deployments were. Because you know, this, this is by
0: now, this is your third third deployment, right?
1: Oh yeah, it was my third deployment. And while I had, while I was involved in Operation Al Fajr, uh, I worked in the operations center. So, I was surrounded by HESCO barriers and sandbags and mm-hmm. was under relatively little danger. Um, we had indirect fire in the early, the early months I was there, but um, you know, while some of these landed pretty close, none of them were ever that much of a threat. But we went into saying and knowing I was going to be on the tip of the spear. We mm-hmm. were going to be direct, directly uh, attached to an infantry company and we were going to pound ground with them. And a place that was just notorious uh, for being a meat rider. Um, sure enough, that's what it ended up being. Uh, I got attached to India Company 3rd Battalion 5th Marines, uh, which was actually, I was real proud of. I had been chasing that battalion or any of the 5th Marine battalions for my whole career. Uh, I wanted nothing more than to go fight with the 5th Marines. So I finally got attached to them. And... Uh, and wound up in singing, pound on the ground with these guys. And in the four months I was there before I got injured, we RSP'd over, uh, rendered safe over 200 IEDs mm. on 100 something calls. We were out nearly every day with them. Mm-hmm. And all but maybe four of our calls were uh, foot mobile. Uh, we didn't do a whole lot of stuff based from the truck, so we didn't have all the all that V-shaped steel to protect us. Uh, we only use the truck to access certain areas, and then we get into town itself through a series of alleyways that those trucks just wouldn't fit through. Um, so, so you were
0: there. For, you were there four months before before you, you had the IED explosion. Yep. Which, so, what, what's your Tim? What's your alive day?
1: Uh, my alive day is tomorrow. Oh yeah. February 3rd, 2011 was when I got blown up, uh, which, Hey, you know, making it four months into that deployment, that was, you know, that was kind of an accomplishment. <laughs> there were a lot of guys who did not make it that far. Um, especially with that unit, which in a sort of macabre way, you know, worked to my advantage when I got injured that third battalion, fifth Marines had so much experience with uh, complex blast injuries that by the time I blew myself up, it was muscle memory for them. And I had to think about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, from, from the, the time I stepped onto the IED to the time I was at the Roll three hospital in, uh, in Camp Ashton it was less than 30 minutes. And so let's, let's, let's bring it back to
0: sports a little bit. Um, and so obviously during rehabilitation, um, uh, you were introduced to adaptive sports. Uh, you mentioned you were at Walter Reed obviously for your rehab. Uh, how long were you at Walter Reed and then just in general, what kind of sports did they did they introduce you to or did you try? which ones did you like which ones did you not like?
1: So I spent about three and a half years total at Walter Reed um, from injury to retirement. I retired in April 2014. Mm-hmm. So somebody else out there can do the math to figure out exactly how many <laughs> days I was there, um, and and I was there in a heyday. 2011 2012 was a busy mm-hmm. time for complex blast injuries uh, at Walter Reed Bethesda, and um, uh, so there was a lot of o- opportunities for sports. You know, Harvey and Kira were always. Um, you know, pounding on the ground, trying to get guys interested in various things, Uh, especially once you reach the the point in your rehab where you start to mature a little bit. Mm -hmm. Basically, your teenage years. uh, Rehabbing is a lot like reliving the first 18 years of your life compressed down to three and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you start to become independent, start to become kind of aware of who you are as a wounded warrior, as an amputee, as whatever you are. Um, those are your teenage years. And that's when they you know, start saying, Hey, here's, here's sports to, to get yourself active outside of the mat seat or, or rehabilitation gym. And here it was all about sled hockey. She, I don't know how many times she tried to tie me into doing sled hockey. And I'm like, I'm from South Texas, I don't give two shits about hockey. Um, it's, I don't dislike it. It's just, I don't care.
0: But that, so, but, but that being said, you did go out to ski, ski spec and you did go skiing, which is not a Texas thing either.
1: <laughs> skiing is a very much Texas thing. If you've been around the Colorado mountains, we fund like all of those ski resorts, so uh, we'll give us that. <laughs> okay, uh, all right. Uh, much to the chagrin of the locals, they hate us, but we pay their bills. So there's <laughs> there's, there's a there's a tension there, but we live with it.
2: Mm-hmm. But,
1: um. Yeah, so I didn't care much for sled hockey, but I was I wanted something. Um, you know, Hand cycling was another big sport that you know everyone does at least to some extent um, while they're rehabbing. And we were lucky enough at Walter Reed to have a really top-notch program for cycling. Uh, it was run by a group uh, then known as Ride to Recovery. Uh, I still love on now as Project Hero, uh, but they had an employee there by the name of Ray Clark, who is. A straight up wizard when it comes to adaptive uh, cycling, upright, hand cycle, recumbent, doesn't matter. And um, started working with him to get ready for cycling. I had somehow I knew about a a bike ride that was part of the MS 150 series um, that went from Houston to Austin. So, and my new commander, uh, his wife, uh, had MS. So I decided, hey, I want to do that ride. We're going to make a team. Me and my best friend, Dave Lyon, got me into EOD, later went on to blow himself up as well. Uh, before I deployed, he was a bi- uh, bilateral AK
2: amputee.
1: Mm. Um, that experience had a lot to do with how I was able to recover. But um, I decided we're going to make a team. We're going to go do this bike ride from Houston to Austin. Um, and we're going to raise money for MS. We wound up raising, I think, 3500 bucks or something like that. And I went down, um, both of them had to drop out for various reasons. I think one of them was actually like driving across the country and got recalled. Um, I think his wife was having some issues and and he had to go back and be with her. So I did it with just myself, um, uh, an EOD friend named Scott Roberts and his wife, Kelly Roberts, uh, who some people might know of from our member operation comfort mm-hmm. uh, San Antonio. So she came out and, um, and rode with us and you now she's a strong rider. So she was able to push me a good bit, but she wasn't push me the whole 150 miles. Um, so I did, I think 77 miles the first day and 65 the second. Oh, wow! So almost the whole thing. And this was like two months after I had started riding and I was instantly hooked on cycling. It was the long-term suffering that I, I mentioned when I talked about hiking in the woods and the solitude mm-hmm. of being by yourself because you're a one-armed guy on a hand fight. Nobody else really rides as slow as you. Um, you know, those things it made a connection. And I was instantly in love with cycling. And that became my, my sport. Uh, and I'm the kind of guy that you know, I find one thing that I like, and then I go all in on it and forget everything else even exists. <laughs> uh, pretty much what happened. Um, I took up cycling hardcore, started riding with Ray. You know, I was riding over hundred miles a week in addition to the you know four hours a day I'd spend in the Matsy gym every morning. And uh And are you are you who, still are you still doing that now? I mean are you still riding that that much? No, no, not even close. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh you know it's turns up work has you know an odd effect on your riding schedule. I it does, doesn't off. it? I can't just go take a whole day and ride my bike for eighty miles whenever I feel like it. Um, but also, coming back off of five years in, in, in college, kind of destroyed my fitness. And I'm still fighting to get back to some place yeah. even remotely close to where I was before. Um, but I had I did race across America with an eight man team, uh, five of whom were hand cyclists. So we only had three upright riders, hmm. so we had, we had to use them judiciously judiciously and we couldn't just put everything on the upright riders and take all the downhills for ourselves. And we had to uh had to climb a lot of mountains on our own. And West Virginia sucks on a bike. Um, <laughs> I was going to say maybe yeah. maybe on a bike yeah. Uh, yeah yeah it's 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 a beautiful state when you don't have to ride up all of those ancient 20% grade roads. It's uphill downhill out.
0: all the way, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh yeah.
1: There are times I wanted to beat my head in the pavement as we get to the top of a hill and you see like three, four more hills up at you. Oh man.
0: Like, we're not done with these yet. No. <laughs> no. And, and I knew cycling and I know cycling has been a big part of, of uh, your life in general, um, particularly, you know, post, uh, post injury, but, but you've also taken on uh wheelchair rugby and, and um, I'd love to just uh, hear why, like, why, why did that, sport appealed to you i know you're back in in houston for a little while so why did you why did you attach yourself to to the wheelchair rugby program there
1: so i didn't necessarily go up you know seeking murder ball out i wasn't like dude i'm in houston i want to go play rugby now it was more of kind of a gradual gradual donning that you know i left all of my support framework i'd built up over 10 years in the walter reed area behind in maryland Hmm. um and i was down here in houston surrounded by family which you know that part's cool but i'm not going to go ride my bike with my mom nobody ever rides bikes in my family um you know, we're not going to go grab beers with them after a good workout or whatever and you know, i was trying to ride on my own and i was getting you know, i was getting some rides in maybe once a week every once in a while could get a couple of rides a weekend um i didn't want to ride on a trainer because that Defeated half of the fun of cycling, and down here, especially in the summer, the weather—it basically thunderstorms every afternoon here. So I'd be like finishing with work, I'm putting on my bibs and trying to get ready to go ride. And we look out the window, and it's just buckets. It's just pouring buckets, and we're like I, don't know, I guess we're not riding in that. Um, and it was starting to wear on me. I was I was starting to to get depressed that I was in this city I didn't really want to be in, and. You know, I didn't have the support groups that I had before. There's some groups and some people that ride here and there, but nothing remotely close to what we had at Bethesda. Um, well that the DC area is a mecca for cycling, and we uh-huh. had a great group to do it with. Houston is a terrible city for cycling, and I didn't have a group to do it with. So, um, so I called up the uh, the Houston Adaptive Sports Center. Uh, they have a gym not far from me on West Gray Street, and asked you know what they had going on. I I wanted to check in with them anyway, just as a work thing, but you know wanted to, I wanted to stop in for a reason. I just didn't want to go just wander around and talk business. But asked them what they had going on. I have wheelchair basketball, wheelchair lacrosse, wheelchair rugby. Like I'm really not really that interested in lacrosse or or basketball, so let me try out wheelchair rugby. Um, so I went down there, and with my, my prosthetic on, um, it's not really fit for rugby. And uh, I sat in a chair, pushed around, did one of the workouts that day, and I was like, "Hey, this is fun!" And most importantly, I had a group. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a group of people that I could that I could do sports with, that that would keep me. Honest, they would keep my nose to the grindstone, just like what I had at uh, Bethesda. Ray used to always say, "Be here or be talked about." <laughs> and uh, um, I'll remember that. I will remember that. Be here or be talked about. You know, it's uh, negative reinforcement, but hey, it worked. It's, you know, it, it prevents you from listening to that that way to. Uh, way too convincing voice in the back of your head that says, nah, man, you just make up for it tomorrow. You can skip this one. Uh, You can't do that when you have scheduled practices with a group because then they're all going to talk shit about you whenever you show back up again. And uh, so I was like, cool. Um, And, you know, I started going there and I've been doing their practices two or three times a week ever since. Um, They have um, usually one main practice a, a week on Thursdays. Uh, in the, in the thick of the season, they add a, a main team practice on Saturdays. And then now on Mondays, they have a, uh, what they call development practice. So um, a lot of the guys that were doing the sport didn't really feel like they were getting enough playing time or when they were, they were just getting blown away by the starters. Uh, Cause we have, we have a pretty good rugby team. They're ranked number six in the country right now. Mm. And our starters are freaking good. If you're new to the sport, you're just going get, to be getting blown out by these guys all the time. It's not that fun. So they have this developmental uh, practice where uh, newer and lower functioning guys can come in and so you're on the develop, you're on the de- development side right now, right? Just at the or are you on the are you on the development program? Well, I'm on the team, but we only have one main team. Okay, uh, they just split the practices into gotcha. the developmental side, so we can get more more scrimmage time. Okay, learning learning with other other players that are new to the sport or that are lower function, uh, things like that gives you a lot more time to be involved. Okay, Um, you know, then we go to the team practices on Thursday, and you just get straight abused by the starters. Um, (laughs) It's pretty nice, actually. You know, like man, they just beat the crap out of me like this whole two hours, but liked it. Um, You know, it's it's something that. Will promote growth in me as a person and as a player.
0: Well, and I know with um, like even just national team players that I've interviewed, uh, either for the magazine or for other, you know, even for another podcast or two, it's about the camaraderie. And I think you've you know you've definitely mentioned that uh, that was a, a part of why you why you wanted to join that program, Tim. We have we have probably about four or five minutes left, and one of the things that I definitely wanted to to kind of maybe close with is. Is uh, I know that you graduated obviously from Georgetown University uh, with a degree in marketing, but you have a you have a specific goal in mind. You want to I mean you 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 want to be a mainstay in the adaptive sports community. You want to you want to continue to contribute in this field. And, and so maybe um, with the last few minutes we have talk about obviously your your journey that's led you to move United, but then what you hope that will do. Uh, in terms of where you want to where you want to be and where you want to go down the road in a few years.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I came to Move United for a reason, uh, and that reason is to promote adaptive sports. Uh, it's it's not you know just a job for me. It's something I, I have full buy in into because of the impact that adaptive sports has had on me between cycling and rugby and more intermittent you know climbing and skiing. Expeditions and stuff I've done—all of those things have really, really helped me define uh, you know my identity, who I see myself as as an amputee. Um, helped me you know, push limits and keep up a level of fitness that helps me with the everyday battle against the world that is being disabled. And um, and I saw you know a lot of people don't have. The access and the, the resources, the opportunities that uh, wounded warriors and disabled veterans have mm-hmm. um, you know people don't want to say it, but we are the spoiled brats of the disabled world. We have everything given to us mm-hmm. and you see that when you get into sports and you start doing sports with some disabled civilians, and you know really it really drags you back down to earth where you have to say, okay I you know, I can just roll into the VA and get a $12,000 bike. Like, not not a snap of the fingers. It takes a bit, but you can get it. Uh, a lot of guys don't have that option. You know, they're, they're scrounging uh, whatever savings they have. Many of them can't work because of their disability. Um, they can't save because of their financial status, you know, being on Medicaid or whatever. And, you know, I want to do what I have given all of the wealth of, you know, attention and support that I received as a wounded warrior at well through Bethesda, I want to do what I can to help other people, you know, see what adaptive sports can be and, you know, help them, you know, get involved in sport. Um, so that's why I came to movie United. That's why I majored in management and marketing is because I knew I wanted going into it that I wanted to work at a nonprofit and I had you know some mentors in the nonprofit world say, "Hey, your business is a good degree to have in the nonprofit world because like they're not, they are businesses mm-hmm. and um, you know this is going to be my life's goal. Um, I'm here at Mar- at Movie United as an intern to to see how these things work not from the participant side but from the the insider employee side, the one making these things happen you know how how do sponsor relations work? How do the you know, event setups work? How can we you know, effectively get our message out to all of the above to participants, to sponsors, to parents, to anybody—even non-stakeholders? You know, what do they need to hear about us? Mm-hmm. And you know, eventually, I want to take that to where I'm going to settle my little slice of paradise in the Gunnison River Valley um, and work for. Um, my favorite member organization of ours the Adaptive Sports Center in Crested Butte. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been participating with them since 2012. Had nothing but great times with them. Uh, they're great people who are in a beautiful town that 100% supports them. I've never seen a, an adaptive program that is so intertwined with their local town as I have in Crested Butte. And when you go there, you see ASC shirts everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everybody in Crested Butte and Gunnison knows the ASC. You know, it's their, They're proud of their ASC. And uh, so I bought a piece of land in Gunnison, uh, just north of town. A little more affordable than Crested Butte. Um, so I'm there. And uh, once the, uh, the house is, is built on that land, then uh, I'll be moving up there permanently. And I'm going to um, rekindle my love for cycling. Because I'll be in another cycling mecca, and uh, I mean, who knows? I'll probably still have to uh, to snowboard a little bit, come down to Houston during, during the winters, and uh, and play some rugby with the team down here.